how do, what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah, feel feel all that the wasn't a rhetorical question, yeah. Jackson. <laughs> what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Hello and welcome back, everybody, to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to have you here. We are, believe it or not, nearing the end of season two. We only have a few more weeks of season two in front of us, and then we will take a short break and be back with you uh, sometime near the end of summer for season three. We'll have more details on that in the coming final closing episodes of season two here. But for now, all you need to worry about is that we are here for another hour with another play. Another play, another great play play another play from the lexicon of american theater another incredible famous uh just pedestal like place in american theater history and really global theater history today we are doing the the famous streetcar named desire by tennessee williams Yeah, yeah, we are jumping into that script. This is a script that I've had quite a bit of history with. Uh, I think I read it in high school for the first time for some purpose, but this was also the script that we used for my sound design class. So it probably was one of the first times that I designed for a a play. So I dug into it quite a lot at that time. So it was fun to get to read it again. Of course, many of us uh, will will get into kind of all the connection points that we have with this play a little bit later on. Yeah, I mean, it exists all over American educational theater, American professional theater still, community theater still. A few years ago, I saw what I thought was just an incredible production of Streetcar Named Desire at uh, a community theater in Des Moines. I I hesitate to say the name of the theater because I'm sure I'll get it wrong. But there was a community (laughs) theater in Des Moines that I went to with some buddies and we saw what I thought was just an amazing version of Streetcar. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. before we kind of get into some of the past versions of Streetcar and our experience with it and more conversation around it, we do want to take just a second and direct you over to our Patreon account. We uh, make this uh, podcast as a labor of love. We love getting to do this show and talk about plays with each other and with you. However, this endeavor is not free. We do accrue some costs from it. Uh, there is hosting fees. There's the fees for or the cost of buying the scripts that we can't find at our local library. And uh, just, you know, the uh, quite a bit of time that we put into this podcast. So if you have been a regular listener, if you like what you're hearing, if you like getting to hear conversations around scripts and and have conversations of your own after reading a script, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and consider becoming a patron of ours. We have a number of different tiers. There's the $1 tier and the $5 tier. $1 gets you access to patron only posts that we'll be putting on there. And then the $5 tier, you get to have like producer credit. We'll say your name at the top of the show if you want. And we're working on more tiers over there as well. So if you have a minute and you want to support the show more than all the wonderful interaction and likes and comments that we're getting, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and we'll see you over there. 
Absolutely. And the lowest tier, just $1 a month. It's just a yeah, dollar yeah. a month. We hope that you feel like you're getting at least a dollar of return on the time that you spend with us <laughs> uh, listening and enjoying No Script, the podcast. So we hope you head over there. Flipping back to Streetcar Name Desire, as we do every week, we want to give you just a little bit about the context of the play before we give you the plot synopsis and hop into our discussion. Streetcar Name Desire, of course, by the famous Tennessee Williams. Tennessee Williams, who's written a number of the very, very famous plays in American theater history, plays like The Glass Menagerie, plays like Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, but Streetcar is pretty well known as his most famous play. If you know one Tennessee Williams play, you're likely to know Streetcar Named Desire. It opened in 1947. Uh, so a fairly old play in terms of, you know, it's more than 50 years old now. It is, it is, it's 50 years has long come and gone. What do we got to be coming up on 75? I don't want to do the math on the fly for yeah, fear yeah. of being very wrong. But uh, <laughs> I, I know that we are close. If it hasn't already passed us by, it's got to be close for 75. Yep. Um, the play is its original cast, the original Broadway production cast, of course, very, very famous Jessica Tandy as Blanche Dubois and uh, Marlon Brando as Stanley uh, Kowalski. And the two of them went on to have just a long and lauded, uh, not just because of their playing of those characters, but because of the the way they set the stage for other people to play those characters. Still today, people will talk about Marlon Brando's playing of Stanley. And so that that's a very famous production to know. The original London production was directed by Laurence Olivier. Um, other notable things of, across time, there was uh, a great production in 1973, apparently at the Lincoln Center with James Ferentino as Stanley and Rosemary Harris as Blanche. Uh, if you're a fan of The Simpsons, there was a Simpsons adaption, a musical adaption of Streetcar <laughs> Named Desire. There was, uh, apparently Alec Baldwin was in a production in the 90s with Jessica Lange as Blanche. That went on to be televised and had John Goodman playing Mitch. More recently, uh, actors like um, Joel Edgerton, I believe, has played Stanley recently. Um, the, the Tennessee Williams Festival in St. Louis, which my wife and I, now that we live somewhere near St. Louis, are trying to get to every year. We're trying to think about, can we get up to the Tennessee Williams Festival one time? So uh, Kate Blanchett has played Blanche recently. She was playing opposite Joel Edgerton. So lots of famous productions like that. The play comes at a really crucial time in the history of America, those 1940s, what, what all was going on in our country at the time, and especially in New Orleans where the play is set. There was kind of a, a shifting of culture then between the old, what would people sometimes talk about as the old South and the new South. And that cultural shift comes up quite a bit in Streetcar Named Desire. So that, that's a little bit of the context. There's a lot more to it being such a lauded and uh, important play. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get into kind of some of that, just some of its renown in general in infinitely quotable lines that have found their way into our lexicon, etc. And we'll, we'll we'll kind of talk about some of its uh, gravitas as a play, I'm sure, by the end of this. Um, I do want to take just a second to synopsize it, just in case you have not interacted with this play before, um, which is very unlikely, I think, at this at this stage, most of you who are listening. But just in case, we'll, we'll talk about some of the big points. But uh, this play can 
can be synopsized in different directions depending on who you view as the central character. So I'll uh, take what my shot at it and uh, kind of be indicative of what I think. Um, the uh, play is structured around the visit of Blanche Dubois to her family, her sister, Stella Kowalski. Um, Blanche arrives in New Orleans and... Uh, and, and comes to their house a little bit uh, sh on short notice. And uh, we, we find out that Stella knew, but she hadn't told her husband Stanley yet that Blanche was coming. And um, Blanche kind of crashes into this, uh, this unexpectedly um, rough neighborhood, let's say. Or um, maybe just a poor neighborhood is honestly what she would define it as. Um, she comes in and she... Uh, begins living with her sister, and the play takes place over the course of a couple months, um, in which they you see her relationship, Blanche's relationship with Stella, her sister, but kind of more prominently Stanley, just kind of uh, prowl around. <laughs> the two of them uh, kind of stalk around each other for a lot of the play. They don't like each other very much. There's some a lot of tension about class and uh, and lying that goes on through most of this play um, between Blanche and Stanley. Mixed into that, there's a whole bunch of other intrigue as well. There is the uh, the kind of critique on, on male poker playing, <laughs> especially, that happens, uh, the, the valid critique on it that happens throughout this play. There is, uh, let's see, what else happens? There's uh, uh, Mitch is a pretty prominent character who we'll talk about, I'm sure. Mitch and Blanche begin to form a romantic relationship, and uh, the consequences of some of the tension between Blanche and Stanley affect that relationship as well throughout the play. That's the super broad airplane version uh, without even really talking about the ending <laughs> that I'm yeah, sure we'll really. get to. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so that's what happens. This is a play about the relationship of this kind of family unit, two sisters and one of the sisters' husband, and the ripple effects that happen outside of them. Right, yeah, and and the core tension probably is the tension, the the lasting tension between Stanley and Blanche, which mm. is established virtually right off the bat and continues to the very final moments of the play. Now, yeah. it's interesting, Jackson, that you began your summary by asking the question, who is the central character of the play? Because... Correct me if you think that I if you think different than I, but I, I don't think anybody would say it's it's anyone but Blanche or Stanley. I would agree with that. Yeah, right. I, I mean, Stella's a strong character, a real important character, but I don't think she's the central character of the play. Has a real argument. Mitch, of course, doesn't. Which right. leaves us with the 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 polar extremes of the play, the mm -hmm. poles between which the other magnets swing. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a, I, I don't, um, I don't think either character thinks that they're not the main character. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> like, like, like I, I think maybe, maybe some of the other characters in this play know that they are not the main center of attention in this right. play. But uh, Stanley and, and Blanche both think that they are the, you know, the star around which the planets turn, um, especially at the beginning of this play. Right, yeah, and, and of course, the, uh, how the gravitational pull of these two vastly different planets affect <laughs> the other interplanetary bodies around them becomes some of the core plot of what occurs. 
Right, right. What kind of tactics maybe is a good way to kind of to start into some things? What do these characters use as ways of of manipulating that power structure throughout the play? Well, the accusation is that Stanley primarily uses brute force and Mm -hmm. sort of animal dominance over the people around him as his tactic for being, as he says, king of the castle. Or right. as Blanche says, sort of the the lead ape in the <laughs> yeah. in the in the pod of apes. I guess what do you call a group of apes? Um, uh, a cluster, a, a, cl- a, a gang, a, a gang of apes. A gang, a crew. I don't know. Um, <laughs> a cr- There's probably a real word for it. Uh, let's go with a crew of apes. Yeah. <laughs> so you know. Uh, there's some evidence that Blanche is right about that. Oh, as yeah. Stanley's primary tactic. He is constantly smashing and banging things around to make his presence and his physical presence be known. He's constantly taking his shirt off, and the stage directions have some things to say about, you know, the physical, the physically imposing physique that Stanley needs to have uh, to, to be the character Tennessee Williams intended him to be. The way that he speaks to other characters characters is demanding you know Mm -hmm. even among his friends the poker players it's mitch get your beep off the table Uh, (laughs) sit down get out here mitch (laughs) deal the cards you know it's it's always dominance it's always maintain power maintain control and then he has the same thing with stella some of the time a lot of Um, much of the time a lot of the time it's uh, it's a lot of telling her what to do, demanding mm-hmm. things of her, both physically and um, and in terms of her yielding to his will. Yeah, but not always with Stella. Yeah, I think Stanley. Uh, I think I think Stanley would agree with the the critique that he uses strength as a, a form of power. I think where he disagrees is that uh, that it's at the exclusion of any sort of uh, uh, cerebral cerebral cleverness. Um, he th- I think he thinks that he is quite convincing and charismatic, and I agree that he generally tries to use that tactic on Stella first. Um, but then resorts by the end of it when he's like, especially if he consistently is losing or not supporting his point well enough, his, his resort is back to physicality again and, uh, imposing this. Yeah. I mean, their first interaction of the play is that Stanley and a friend basically are coming around the corner out front of their little tenement house and Stanley yells at Stella, Hey, catch. And she says, (laughs) what? And he says, meet. And, and that's just the one word, meat, <laughs> right. and flings this bag of meat at her. <laughs> yeah, this like bloody bag of meat. <laughs> uh huh. Up the steps. Yeah. No, hello, darling. Good to see you. Yeah. No, look what I brought home for supper, dearest love of my life. It's <laughs> hey, catch meat, and throws it up at her. <laughs> yep, yep. That that's Stanley right there. Yeah, and and that I, I think that pervades throughout the script is everyone uh, kind of fears the animalistic side of Stanley, except for maybe Stella. Stella is kind of confusing in that way. Yeah, that that is one of the harder Stella's what what Stella sees in Stanley, what the attraction actually is, what she gets out of the relationship is a mystery to me. 
Mm. And if, you know, if I were in a situation where I was going to have to work on the play, if I were directing it or designing for it and I had to make decisions, there are decisions to make. But just speaking in terms of the script on a literary level where I don't I'm nobody's forcing me to make decisions like that. Boy, is it mysterious what in the world she sees in Stanley. Yeah, there is that. The, the, there are there are hints throughout that I think could point to it. For instance, she talks about an excitement that she gets from him, um, and this is just written into the script. I don't want to try to make a broader commentary on what we do with, yes. when someone is being this. Uh, Stanley goes around and like breaks lights with her slipper. Right throughout it is this instance that she's talking about. It's like he gets in a mood that's so. Uh, over the top that he steals her slipper and starts breaking all the light bulbs in the apartment. And she responds that her reaction is that of excitement um, and, and, and kind of uh, edginess. The edginess of Stanley is exciting to her. And that's what she loves about him. We're yeah, not I making a comment thr- about thrilling that. is the word that she, used. Yeah, she, yeah, she yeah. was thrilled by it. And yes, that's an important point to make here because the, uh, the relationship between Stanley and Stella is an abusive one. Yeah. Through and through, no question, cut and dry, an abusive relationship, a physically abusive relationship, and a mentally and emotionally abusive relationship. So when we say things like Stella finds it thrilling, I think it's a good note, Jackson, that we're just telling you what the script says. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We are not making a comment on these types of relationships or what people in them feel about each other or why people who are being abused stay with their abusers. We're just talking about the script that somebody else wrote. Right, and right. And that a yeah. lot of people still do. Mm-hmm. And that that's an odd part, right? I mean, that this is so... So the instance that we're talking about, if you haven't read the script, is maybe the center point of the middle part of the play, maybe the very middle of the play. And at at the conclusion of this poker game, Stella and Blanche have come home early. They've been playing music. Stanley's lost a bunch of money. He's drunk. He gets so upset, he breaks the radio, throws it out the window, and then he hits Stella. Stella and Blanche retreat upstairs. The men throw Stanley in the shower. Stanley stumbles out drunk. He gives the famous, Stella! (laughs) Stella! And Stella comes down and comes back to him. Mm Mm-hmm. The next morning, Blanche arrives. Stanley's already gone to take care of the car and fix the radio and all that. And Blanche and Stella have a lengthy conversation about what in the world Stella is doing coming back, back. To, to coming back to Stanley after the last night. But also, Blanche has learned since then, this kind of thing happens all the time. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that, that scene, I agree, is kind of the crux both of the first part of the play, both to kind of define the relationship they're in, and then also just like... It, it, it is such a memorable scene because you see all the main characters of the play and the 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 flow of the different power dynamics. Different people try to assert dominance over the situation, but in the end, Stanley just animalizes and and can overcome all of his friends at the table, overcome all of the reason of Stella, overcome all of the the kind of, we haven't talked much about Blanche's tactics, but some of the uh, verbal manipulation of Blanche and just explodes and dominates the room. Um, 
and 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 then just as like a kind of side note this scene has so many of the quotable lines you already mentioned stella there is poker should not be played in a house with women that is one of the quotable lines in this one so this this crux of a scene is is where a lot of the memory people leaving the play remember this scene i certainly remember this scene and it is such a defining moment for the characters because they all get to try their tactics mitch is introduced to blanche for the first time in this in this scene and you get to see that relationship develop so it's just it's just a huge melting pot of a scene for this play. Right. Yeah. And then you're talking about the actual scene where Stanley brutalizes and beats um, Stella. And then the next day they have this conversation about wh- why is Stella staying? And this is where Stella says things like, well, you know, he's always smashed things. That's just who right. he is. On our wedding night, he took my slipper and broke all the bulbs in the house. And it was thrilling. And then she says another very quotable, memorable line from the play that is an interesting, baffling line. She says, you know, Blanche, there are something, she says something, I'm not quoting it exactly, but she says, there are things that happen between a man and a woman alone in the dark that make everything else go away right or something very similar to that and blanche immediately takes her to mean sex because mm-hmm. blanche launches into where the title of the play comes from this idea that that stella is riding this quote-unquote streetcar named desire yeah. That she's just with Stanley for pure sexual, emotional, or not emotional, not emotional, specifically right. not emotional, right. sexual, physical desire because of that that part of their relationship. That's Blanche's accusation. Whether Blanche is right in that immediate leap to conclusion or not is an interesting question. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think Blanche is kind of... Blanche throughout this play is working through some of her own stuff in these interactions. And I wonder in that scene if there is more going on kind of that she is trying to process stuff from her perspective alone that can work because their perspectives are so different in this play. We find out that Blanche, to some degree, for some amount of time, was left behind at the family estate. Um uh, Stella Stella left after their father died, met Stanley, and moved to New Orleans. And uh, Blanche stayed in Mississippi and watched her whole family die around her. I think I think that much of her story is true. Um, yeah, and it's it. I think we know it's true because Stella seems to know that that is true. And yeah. we get the idea that Stella went back for the funerals because specifically Blanche says you came back for the funerals. Right. So I think <laughs> I think you're right that we we know and the reason why we're being so uh, careful about it is because there's not much that we know of Blanche's life whether what is true and false. But this much is true that Blanche and Stella grew up on a plantation in Mississippi called Belle Reve. And that when Blanche was a very young woman, she was married for a while and then not married. We'll talk about that. And eventually Stella left right after one of the family's deaths, leaving Blanche alone. The rest of the family basically died from various illnesses around Blanche, leaving her to care to cover their medical costs and their funeral costs and leaving her and Stella absolutely alone in the world. No one else of their families left. And uh, Blanche was unable to pay for all these funeral and medical costs without 
I think now this is now this gets into the I think yeah, this part. Is, yeah, yeah. I think she was forced to take a second mortgage on the plantation, or maybe never a second mortgage because it's a family home for hundreds of years. Maybe a first mortgage on the plantation uh, in order to have that money, and because she, all she was was a school teacher, at, not making very much money at the time, she couldn't afford the mortgage payments on the plantation, and eventually lost it. Some yep. of that is fairly confident. Some of that is my supposition. Yeah, because we're not 100% sure, though there are papers uh, delivered at one point to Stanley for him to peruse. Um, despite his his uh, fervor for trying to find them, he doesn't spend much time processing them. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he kind of looks at him and is like, ah, I got a friend who can read this. I'll give it to a friend. And then we never see the papers we again. We never hear about it again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I agree that the, the, the specific details of what happened to the family estate, what specifically happened to Blanche while she was alone after her whole family died is a little bit up for grabs um, uh, in terms of who you believe for that story because multiple characters have a, have a story to tell about that. Um, but I think that feeds into this this uh, tirade that she goes on about the streetcar named Desire as well. Like she has been chasing the streetcar named Desire for a good chunk of her life as well. And uh, what's the contrast that she brings to light? I'm spacing on it right now, but there's there's like two things that she compares it to. There's a streetcar named Desire, and then well, right. She she talks about the streetcar named Desire being kind of the 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 Stella side of the equation that. Uh, according to her summary of what Stella has said about why she stayed, it has to do with kind of animal magnetism and desire for each other. And then she talks about the Stanley side of the equation and who he is and basically compares him to a Neanderthal or mm, yeah. a, a, maybe a slightly evolved ape or a caveman. Ape is the word she uses. And it, it she has this long, long, long monologue describing all the ways in which Stanley is an animal, the way he eats and talks like an animal. He has these animal rituals of coming together with all the other guys in his, what do we say, the ape crew. The ape and, crew, and yeah. Grunting and fighting about the kill and, and things and how the rest of society has moved on and evolved, but how Stella's getting stuck behind with this sort of animal behavior of, of Stanley and his group around him. And, and Stanley is listening to this, which is an important point. And one of the reasons why I listened to an audio recording of this, as I often do, because it's it's convenient for me while I run and drive to be able to listen to audio productions and plays before I read them. And this play does not do very well as an audio <laughs> production. It's so physical. Yeah. And yep. there's so much in the stage directions that you miss that I like. I like read it and I was reading a different play. I was yeah. like, oh, Stanley's here. <laughs> He's hearing all this. Oh, that makes sense. Now right. I know why he hates her. Yeah. You almost need like a Soto voice to come on and read the read relevant the stage, stage directions. directions. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. So yeah, I, Stanley is listening to her describe him as an animal, a brute, an unevolved primitive Neanderthal. Yeah, there's a and there's a there's a pretty significant racism component to this too. Um, Blanche throughout the play refers to him uh, as a, a derogatory term from Polish ancestry. Um, I think I can say it, but it's a it's a it's she uses Polak uh, a bunch, which is a, a slur against his his uh, nationality, and she just uses it over and over throughout the play. And uh, that that's that's part of the again we we haven't talked about her tactic too much, but she is uh, kind of a she 
uses language as her as her shield and her barrage against other people. She is a very accomplished linguist and is able oh, yeah. to... She, she's an English teacher, right? So yeah. literary references spring to her easily, and she makes many of them throughout the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, just the use of a higher dialect, a more refined, more educated dialect as compared to the way that Stanley speaks, mm-hmm. uh, to, to, I think is certainly used on her part as an air of superiority. And then also just filling the space with words. Nobody talks like Blanche talks. Right. And like tease herself up to feel superior as well, especially with Stanley. So this heightened dialogue, she knows that she's kind of ascending beyond some of Stanley's uh, um, vernacular in, 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 in her lines. Um, whether or not Stanley gets where she's going or not isn't necessarily the point. She knows that she's being uh, verbose enough to bewilder him a little bit. And, uh, and to make fun of him for the fact that he's bewildered by it. Right. So as you mentioned, there is a racism component to Blanche's view of Stanley. And it doesn't have so much to do with skin color, obviously, because they're, they're both white people, at least as it's written. There have been many successful productions in a, in a multicultural cast. But at least as it's written, they're both white people. But it has to do a lot with immigration, And class, class, right. So the the Dubois, Stella and Blanche and their family are long time, you know, Southern aristocracy, basically. They're they're from a wealthy, longstanding Southern family. And so there is a there's a sense of discrimination and superiority and judgment towards these newly arrived poor immigrant families. She actually at one point compares them to like being Irish. Yeah, and, the and Polish that, and that, the Irish. Right. There's a there's a more maybe commonly known understanding of how people viewed Irish at the time. Yeah. And so that's where the racism element or the discrimination classism element comes into play as well. Mm-hmm. Which which is part of the the eventual boiling level that it gets to. Uh, one of the, one of the significant fights um, is a, is around. It kind of culminates with Stanley yelling that I'm not a Polak. Someone who is from Poland would be Polish, and I am not from Poland. I'm from America, and this is and I am 100% American, and I'm a, and I'm proud of it. So he that that is that is part of the barb that is consistently thrown at him. We have this language of ape of animalistic. We have this language. Of, of racism against him being Polish and, an, and a recent immigrant to the country. And that that's that is a good chunk of Blanche's tactic around what do you think her goal is for all these tactics? Uh, as well, she is. Let's go back just a hair and, and think yeah, yeah. a little bit more about it as a tactic, because it's not really a tactic that she uses in confrontations with Stanley. Right. She is not confrontational enough to say things like that to Stanley. This is what she says behind Stanley's back mm-hmm. to Stella, to Mitch. When she's with Stanley, she has a very different tactic. Right. And it's, it, it, it is more about her femininity and her being sort of um, submissive or, or at least superficially submissive and flirtatious with him in order to appease what she claims is this sort of apish brutality. Right. She claims a higher understanding of him at one point than even Stella. Yeah, what a freaking <laughs> ridiculous line. <laughs> yeah. 
It's like her first conversation with Stanley, and she they're going to have a conversation about Belle Reeve finally. Stanley's like, I've, I want to talk about this. And so <laughs> Blanche sends Stella away to go get her a soda pop. And right. when, Stan, when Stella's gone, she's finally like, now we can really talk. You know, I think I understand you better than she does. Yeah. <laughs> what? Wow. You like just met this person. <laughs> well, that, that's interesting though, right? Because is Blanche a very sympathetic person? Uh, um, that's a great question. Um, in in general, like that, she I think says that, crap like that. She does all the time. Yeah. But I don't know why this play exists if it's not because we feel sympathy for Blanche. <laughs> throughout this play like I, I don't think that she I wonder if there's a, a interesting comment to make about sympathy and empathy and I'm gonna try to make it right now um because I believe I in you here we go uh, here we go <laughs> I don't <laughs> I <laughs> I don't think she's a very empathetic character. Like, I don't feel empathy towards her, but her plight is one that is is uh, necessary of should necessitate a sympathetic response. She is, you know, she's in the middle of a pretty awful life evolution that is happening very quickly for her and she crash lands into this place that she is not expecting uh at all into this family unit that she is not expecting everything is kind of torn away from her uh even privacy is torn away from her privacy is talked about a lot in this play that they're living in this two-bedroom apartment with a bathroom connected no, not to a two-bedroom bedroom apartment a two-room apartment thank you one yes. room and a bedroom right with no door yeah, with a bathroom attached to the bedroom. So yeah. any any traffic between these rooms and in any state of, you know, getting ready for the day uh, is done very publicly. So she is in a very uncomfortable place, uh, both uh, mentally and physically. And uh, and and we and we. I think I think that necessitates a sympathetic response. <laughs> I I don't disagree with you, but I think you're describing Blanche's position in the audience hearts and in the lens of the play at the end of the play. Mm. One of the things that is interesting about this play is that Blanche occupies this position where I think for the first good half of the play, I think she's the antagonist. <laughs> and I think yeah. a, a, a fairly unsympathetic, unempathetic antagonist. She rolls in, right? Because she's the stranger. Right. She, we, we, are, we are introduced to the world of New Orleans and the relationship of Stella and Stanley, albeit briefly, before we are introduced to Blanche. She is the stranger coming to visit in terms of classic old plot structures. Yeah. And one of the one of the journeys of the play that tracks through is can the people survive the stranger coming to visit? Yeah. Now, the stranger starts the play sort of as an antagonist, right? She's got all these secrets. She's keeping secrets. She might be swindling people. She's so highbrow. She's constantly insulting the people around her, even unintentionally. She's making her very sympathetic, very empathetic sister take care of her and deal with her. And it's clear that her sister even knows that she's kind of a pain in the ass. Sorry <laughs> yeah. for the swearing. You know, yeah. she's got all of that around her. And throughout the play, we're doled out in small amounts and then a little more and then all at once the story of why she is the way she is 
Mm-hmm. And across the play, she goes from being absolutely the the antagonist, the one you don't want to, you know, Stanley and Stella are the people you want to be on their side right. until a, cr- a crucial few things happen. One of the things that happens is that Blanche ends up being the victim or the mm-hmm. hero or the protagonist by the end of the play. But I'm, right. I don't know that we start there. Yeah, I think I agree. Both, both. If you feel, if you feel, uh, uh, simp- or if if you feel like you want Stanley and Stella to be okay, she's definitely not the protagonist. If you feel like you want s- people to be safe from Stanley, she is not the protagonist. <laughs> but 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 even that question, right? Do you do you want Stanley and Stella to be okay? Do you feel like Stanley is a safe person to live with? Even that, only the only real questions around that start to explode about the middle of the play. Yeah. Up yep. until then, Stanley's a little bit gruff. He's certainly a little bit vulgar. Um, yep. But he's not the one who walked in to his sister's house, and the first thing he says about it is, I never thought you'd come back to this horrid place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep, and it's like insulting to the neighbors right away. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, of the two characters at the beginning of the play, certainly I think Stanley and and Stella as a unit are a more, you lean more towards them. But then as things are revealed, one of them is that Stanley is very abusive. Another one is that Blanche is the way she is because of an incredibly hard life. An incredible amount of abandonment, an incredible amount of death, an incredible amount of her having to give up on her dignity and her perceived self-worth as a Southern aristocrat and fall into basically, I mean, what what exactly do you think happened between Belle Reve and New Orleans? Right, right. Well, I'm, it's a little bit subjective. Again, we get it from two different points of view, and those two different points of view have uh, either trust involved or hearsay involved. So it's a little bit... <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit hard to track it down, but I think what happened is she basically became a companion um, to people. Um, she stayed at a ho- uh, the the the, uh, the flamingo. Uh, the flamingo, yes. The accusation is that she lived at the flamingo and would be a companion to people who came through. Um, it seems like it was not like 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 she was trying to pursue some sort of relationship with them. It was some sort of prolonged, but eventually the relationship would have a very quick end, and then she would go on to the next person. That's that's one of the accusations made is that eventually she couldn't run her scam anymore in that town. That's there. I think that's Stanley's words, um, and uh, they all knew what she was, and she couldn't get any work there, so she was kicked out of the flamingo and then came to New Orleans. Right, and that story on its own sounds very heartbreaking for Miss Blanche, and it sounds like she was just, you know, she, we, we, before we know that, we know that she was married to this man for a while who cheated on her and who then she believes she caused to commit suicide uh, without really intending to and was abandoned by him in death. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, that's hard. That's, that, that's a really – when she was very young, this happened. She had that in her past. Then all of her family dies. Her sister abandons her. She's forced to live as 
as you say, as a companion. And that's all very sympathetic. But there's also one more thing that happened and that it ends up coming up at one point in the play as well, which is we learned that the reason eventually why Blanche lost her position as a teacher and was sort of run out of town was that she ended up being a companion to uh, one of her students, yeah. a young teenage boy. Mm-hmm. And actually, young teenage is not quite right. He was an older teenage boy. He was like 17. Yeah. But uh, a young boy, a boy, a teenager. Mm-hmm. And we have some corroborating evidence that we as the audience see of that. That is one very, of the few things. Yes, very yeah. uncomfortable scene. Yeah. That is one of the few things that does not need too much uh, trust to bring across because there is actually a scene where this, uh, this I think he's... Uh, his character name is the young collector uh, comes to the door he's collecting funds for something in the neighborhood and uh, she has this very uh, flirtatious romantic scene with him that ends in her kissing him and then yeah and at one point her going like oh come here you young 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 man (laughs) yep yeah exactly (laughs) and ending and culminating with her saying okay now you have to go i have to be good and not do this with young boys i think the line is i have to keep my hands off of children (laughs) right yeah so <laughs> yeah so yeah absolutely that's 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 absolutely part of her story as well I think I think that's that's one of the the stronger accusations against her throughout the play and it leaves you I mean you know I I tried to use that as evidence in my Blanche becomes the victim argument right. but that didn't work out that for me too well work. because that sounds pretty terrible yeah that's also pretty bad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really, the only truly empathetic character is Stella. Yeah. Blanche's plight is, it's a tough one, I think, to to really grasp and ride enough to, to let the end of the play hit like it has to. Do you agree? Right. Yeah. I think, I think the, what, what Tennessee Williams has done is made an electric character that it's hard to look away from her demise. So I don't, I don't think that the, I don't think that the emotional response is any lessened in me by the fact that I know all these hard things about her. The demise is still so heart-wrenching by the end of the play. And especially because of the specifics of how the demise occurs. Um, it is it is, it is, is still very heart-wrenching, I think. Right, and it's sort of tragic in the old Greek sense. And it, it's not that as in a Greek tragedy, there is a tragic hero with a, a tragic specific flaw. tragic flaw. It's not quite like that, but it has the same um, cathartic, capturing, hypnotic sense where you watch the tragic hero encounter their demise, uh, and the and it's not it's not that. You know, like in a tragedy, it's like the just rewards for their actions. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like with Blanche, you watch this demise of the unjust world uh, claiming another one. Yeah. Yep. I do want to go back real quick before we kind of advance to where we, we should end the conversation with. Um and talk about your comment just briefly. I think you said something like uh, Stella is the only sympathetic character or truly sympathetic character. Sure. Um, 
I would like to hold one other option up for us. Okay, what yep. do we think of Mitch? Hey, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> look, Mitch is a very sympathetic character as well. He's intentionally written to be sympathetic. I mean, yep. like come puppy on. dog level. The guy has a sick mom at home who's about to die and just wants to see her son get married before she <laughs> dies. <laughs> You're laying it on a little thick, Tennessee. <laughs> That's true. Oh my goodness! He's I think that, like puppy dog sick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some level of complication. His response uh, to Stanley's accusation against Blanche is quite harsh, but it's one I think that is a motivated response. Um, that he eventually you see him deal with the ramifications of it. He strikes out at Stanley in the last scene because he kind of recognizes some of the manipulation that Stanley puts onto the group. Again, Stanley is the king of the apes in this scenario and Mitch is, is part of that crew. Um, he served with uh, him in the engineer corps and uh, so there's there's this connection to Stanley where when Stanley goes and tells him what he thinks he's learned about Blanche, that she was uh, she lived at the Flamingo and had all these uh, these companionship relationships. Um, he, when he receives that news, he kind of takes it and and just doesn't doesn't come to her birthday party, which is, I mean, that sounds like a third grade level of heart wrenching, but it's actually super heart wrenching in this play when he doesn't show up to her party. And um, so I think I. <laughs> I think though there is some complication around that he he seems to be a pretty sympathetic well, character. And, and there's an interesting I think structural parallel too between the relationship of Mitch and Blanche now and the relationship of Blanche and her young husband hmm. um whose name I think is Alan. Yep. And so let, let's tell that story briefly. So Alan was, uh, they were very young. It's never really clear how young. Uh, they say just over and over, oh, they were so young. Right. She was just yeah. a baby. She was just barely more than a girl. <laughs> <laughs> and they fall, Alan and Blanche, this is, just, this is all told in story that's not flashbacks or anything. They, they fall in love. Alan is writing poetry and Blanche is telling, he's like, he needs something from her, but she doesn't know what uh, in and Stella's telling Blanche is so in love with him that she thinks he's like an Adonis and, and the, the ground turns to gold at his feet. You know, he's amazing. She's so head over heels for him. They get married. Uh, eventually, you know, shortly after their marriage, she finds her, Blanche finds her new young husband who she's in love with in bed with another man. Um, they all get drunk. They go to this casino while they're dancing. Blanche says to the young husband, I know I saw you cheating on me. I saw that it was with another man and you disgust me. Again, this is the 40s. And apparently the young man runs out of the casino, shoots himself, and she discovers that she's caused the death of this man that she was so in love with. It's all very heartbreaking. What a terrible story. The crux of it, though, is this sense that Blanche was so in love with this young man that to discover his betrayal tore her apart in a way that uh, caused her to do things that seem vicious. In the same way, I think, that language of how Blanche was, the way that Blanche was in love, so head over heels, so rose-colored glasses, so encapsulated by him, I think is how Mitch views Blanche. Mm -hmm. he, I mean, he's just so enamored. She, he, she's so different than anything he's experienced before. That when a betrayal comes, 
it causes him to say things that are vicious yeah. in a similar way to how Blanche did. And uh, Blanche's vicious words cause a demise. Mm-hmm. And Mitch's vicious words really are the catalyst to Blanche's demise at the end of the play. That's- or at least, Or at least one of the many. That's fascinating. I love that parallelism of, of of those two beats. I hadn't really thought about it before, but this is kind of uh, history repeating slash uh, the mirror image of history repeating, and and it, that that kind of f- fulfillment of prophecy almost again that goes back to Greek tragedy. There isn't necessarily a pro- there is not a prophecy where a character says this will befall you or anything, but it is a very similar beat to Greek tragedy of this thing that you think you did will come back to haunt you again. So that, that that's that's awesome. I hadn't picked up on that. Yeah, well, and and it makes Mitch's reaction. If you, I think you have to make sure if you were ever to do this play, and in the reading of it, I think you have to be on Mitch's side in terms of how much he loved her. Even and, and and weeks go by in their relationship. The other thing that is important about this play is that it's not over the course of forty-eight hours or anything. It's over the course of many weeks. Uh, we know that Mitch and Blanche have been on many dates. They've gotten to know each other pretty well. They're starting to think about getting married, which you know, in our time seems rushed, but for their time, they've been on many dates now. They like each other. They're both of eligible age. So I mean, that's the place that this relationship is in. Mitch is saying how he wants to get married very quickly because his mother's going to die and 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 they're they you know they're exchanging goodnight kisses and and talking about that part of their relationship and if you're on Mitch's if you're with Mitch in terms of how much he cares for her then a betrayal of this sort not only that she lied to him about who she was and her past and what kind of person she is but also that she did something like you know abuse a teenage boy that kind of betrayal becomes really stark and really heartbreaking. Yeah. And I would I would try to make the converse argument of if you're on Blanche's side, him not coming to her birthday, etc., um, and, and kind of leaving her hanging in the wind, especially with all the things that are going around her, is equally damaging. But there is that pesky scene that we talked about before, that right before Mitch comes over one time, she has this weird amorous relationship with the young uh, collector. So, so there are beats within this play that that make it hard to balance the scale back to Blanche um, in those scenarios. I agree that I, I think I think you are supposed to feel really uh, feel really much uh, a good deal towards Mitch and his plight in that last scene. Um, so, so it's it's tough. It's tough to try to balance it out to get to get Blanche on the good side of us as the audience. As we keep trying to support her, there's like different scenes that stop us in our path. Right. And, and you know, we've been a little bit hard on Blanche, probably. I'm not sure, ultimately, if we're really supposed to feel as negatively towards Blanche as reading it in today's world, we maybe do. Um, but the end of the play is... A, a complicated, heartbreaking story of a woman who's been through a lot and has come out in just bad, bad straits. Uh, that's even before she comes to New Orleans. And then while she's here, she's been constantly harassed by uh, who, who she thinks is a, a physically very threatening man that is living in the same place as her that she has no privacy from. 
Uh, she meets one guy finally who she reaches out to and who seems decent, who seems to care for her. You know, she's come to New Orleans to restart and she seems like she's been able to do it finally. She's going to find someone who she can make a life with. And this great, she describes him, ape of a man, uh, bashes it all to pieces. And then to top it all off, what happens in the climax scene at the end? Well, yeah, it's awful. It's the the last scene. He comes home and and, and oh, Stella second has... Second to last scene. Thank you. The second to last scene. Stella is having their baby. She is in labor with their child. And he comes home because the doctor said she's going to be doing this all night. So go home. Um, it, it, dude, it was the 40s. Different times, different times. That's time. all I can think of when <laughs> yeah. they say, no, just go home, bud. Yeah. And... Uh, and what winds what winds up happening is they both deploy all of their tactics again. Blanche lies. Stanley threatens physically, and Stanley rapes her. He takes her into the next room, and and yeah, that's that's the the second to last scene is that. And at, at the end of their kind of confrontation again, the physicality of Stanley is is the is the 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 thing that wins in the end. Right, yeah, he he claims her physically. Interestingly, he claims her physically after beating her mentally, like in the game of tactics. Because when he comes home, she, after being uh, uh, totally rejected by Mitch for her betrayal and her lies, she says, uh, well, I've gotten this call from this uh, mi- mysterious millionaire who's going to take me on a cruise, so I'm packing to leave. And through a series of complicated leading questions, Stanley finally gets her to slip up. Basically, he's talking about how Mitch, what, what happened when Mitch came over, and finally he get, he catches her by just saying, "Well, what was this before or after the uh, the telegram from the rich millionaire?" And she goes, "What? What do you mean? What telegram? Oh no, uh, yes, no, it was after just the telegram, just yeah. after." Now, and so he wins the verbal encounter. For yeah. one of the very first times, he's did not have to end the verbal encounter by smashing something. He right. won. He proved that she was lying in the moment. Yep. He got her. But even that is not enough to satisfy Stanley. Not only does he have to win the verbal encounter, he then wins the physical encounter and he rapes her. Yeah. Which is then then leads to this, you know, the next scene is this this heartbreaking scene of watching Stella turn her sister into a psychiatric. What do we think she's going to? Some yeah, it's a it's a state institution is yeah. what the stage directions give us, likely a mental institution. Mm-hmm. Yep, which, you know, 1940s America, we've done a play about that before. <laughs> and and the kind of the the perceived horrors and the true horrors that went on in those places. So all the characters know kind of where she's going. Um and and this I mean it's this scene of just watching watching these two sisters being ripped apart by by what has happened uh, as a result of Stanley and Blanche's conflict. Right. I mean, talk about lies. Through the whole play, we didn't end up talking much about this theme that goes on through the play, which is this theme of who's lying and how lies are used. Yeah. There's some some pretty serious discussion about that. But you think about that, of course, the final scene is a lie. And the lie is that Stella and Eunice, who's one of the neighbors, and Stanley and everybody has told Blanche, we're sending you, this rich millionaire has called you away to the country for a vacation, for a nice rest. So that's where you're going. That's the story they've told her. And in her uh, sort of broken mental state as a result of this rape, and, and the other thing that's important to note is that apparently Blanche has told everybody 
that she's been raped. And that's why they're sending her to the mental institution. Right. Stella says that she just can't believe that Stanley would do that. She can't live here and, and, and know that. So she just is deciding not to believe Blanche. Right. I mean, whew. How, what do you do with that? Yeah. Yeah, feel feel all that the wasn't a rhetorical question, yeah. Jackson. <laughs> what do you do with that? What do you do with it? How do you how do you play that last scene? How awful is it that that I mean that that this sister to her didn't believe her and 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 that th- that is really the culmination. It's the final proof that Stella is with is with Stanley, yeah. not Blanche. Mm-hmm. Throughout the play. There's never really been a question of Stella's authority and anybody's of Stella's. I'm sorry, not authority of Stella's um, allegiance to anybody but Blanche. And the question is, at what point will you be on your sister's side? How much? How much? Um, how much abuse will you allow Blanche to take at the hands of Stanley before you did something really drastic? Now, yeah. Stella's always telling Stanley to stop teasing Blanche, stop right. treating her so badly, stop being so mean. But she never really does anything about it. Mm-hmm. And in the final insult to injury, she, when the claim comes, your husband raped me, she says, you must be making this story up because you're, because of all of what's happened to you, you must have, you're, you're, the inside of your head must have kind of cracked. And so now we have to send you to a mental institution because you must be making up the story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you were right on earlier when you were talking about uh, how Blanche never insults Stanley to his face, but insults him to people like Mitch and to Stella. Stella is the battleground on which this war in this play between Blanche and Stanley is fought. And in this last scene, we get to see who wins the fight. <laughs> and alas, it is Stanley. <laughs> uh, totally and completely. Yeah. Stanley wins. And... That's that's just rough, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's that's part of why the play is heartbreaking at its conclusion. Not that you've been so invested in Blanche because she's this empathetic character who you're on her side and you want her to succeed in her goals, but because Stanley is such a villain character. Right. He's other, you know, he he's so you're so against his way of thinking. And his life philosophy that to see it succeed so utterly at and at the hands of such physical dominance, to see the ideology of physical dominance mm-hmm. succeed so completely at the end is heartbreaking. Right, right. We, we, I think we've brought up Richard III a couple times now after we've done it, but it's like watching Richard III where Richard III doesn't die. Like it's like you you watch all of these tactics of Stanley come to its full fruition and get nothing. The, the the it's like the inverse of catharsis by the end, where you feel just ugh, how how did this happen? Yeah, and the question still remains for me: <laughs> How did this happen, especially for Stella? How? Are you on his side? How are you with a person like this? What do you see in him? And we've given you what she says, but it doesn't seem like what she says is enough to warrant the end of the play. There's something else, something deeper, and probably, and and of course, the most memorable scene is where you probably see the unspoken reality, which is after Stanley has hit her, 
stumbled out drunk onto the porch, yelling, Stella, Stella. She comes down to him, and the stage directions are this just sort of wild embrace between the two of them, this just sort of deep, carnal grasping on to each other, that there's something, you know, there's something between them that exists under the level of words that we're, we're supposed to catch on that maybe it's a little bit harder to catch on to in the reading. Yeah, I think I think whatever uh, arguments you can make against this play, uh, many of them don't work if you've seen the play. This play is 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 a character based play that that so much of the oh my goodness how can this exist um, is explained by really good character acting, and I think that is ultimately why a play with such complicated and oftentimes just gross themes um, has persisted in and become such a part of our national theater lexicon, as I said at the beginning, is because these characters are electrifying to watch and, and their, 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 uh, alliances and tactics and, and hopes, uh, are, are so interesting to watch either come to fruition or fall apart. And I, I think, too, that the mystery, uh, the questions that you're left with are part of the experience of the play, too. Uh, when we watched, when I watched that amazing production of Streetcar in Des Moines, I remember the three guys, we just, I remember us talking about it. Well, what did, I mean, what about this? And do we really understand exactly why this happened? And it was part of the experience of the play to leave with wonderings and thinkings about what we have witnessed. And and I think maybe this speaks to what you just said, Jackson, which you said there's some gross themes in the play. And I, and I'm not I think I'm going to quarrel with that a little bit. There are some gross things that happen, but I think that Tennessee Williams ultimately is on our side and not the plays. Like I, I do, I despite the fact that Tennessee Williams wrote the play where someone like Stanley wins through sheer dominance, I don't think Tennessee Williams gives his stamp of approval to that, right? Because the end is so heartbreaking. Right. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that definitely. Uh, uh, the the I think the playwright is definitely not on the side of Stanley, and any there it's clear that there is villainy afoot in that in that character i don't think i don't think that he's and he's not on the side of the patriarchal dominance either i mean the plight of stella and blanche we didn't talk much about this particular part of the play but the plight of them as women being unable to really make their way in the world without attaching themselves to uh, a man who would then have something like ownership and power over them is a major part of their journey and and a thing that i think tennessee williams feels very sympathetic towards the women for and says part of what the play says is look at what happens when we're forcing people in this society to put themselves in these positions yeah i would echo that as well i i yeah i don't i don't think it takes anything away from the craft of the playwright to do it it's just navigating the hard waters of putting something on with this level of those themes i think that that is that is that is the tough part for me is i mean as, right, as, it's a it's a play where the bad guy wins, right? Thoroughly, right? and and wins very completely and very tragically, very yeah. disturbingly. 
Mm-hmm. And you're, you're part of the experience of the play, like you said, is go is as the community of people watching the play then going, okay. Wow. I, I don't want that to happen. Yeah. <laughs> what do I do about the fact that Tennessee Williams seems to be telling me that in society, at least society in the 40s, this was what happens to people? Mm-hmm. How can that not be anymore? Right. How can we guard against that? Yeah. Well, I think I think that's about all the time that we have for this one. This is, I mean, this is there. There are a number of scenes that we didn't get to get into in this play. There are a number of themes, like like the theatricality of this play, all of the the like sound design of this play. It is a beautiful, deep play full of so many complicated themes, beautiful characters, and and intricate plot design. So. Super excited that we got to talk about it. If there is more that you would like us to talk about uh, or that you just want to talk to us about, um, if you've seen this play, read this play, been a part of this play, many of us have out here in the U.S. of A. So if you have interacted with this play, we'd love to continue having the conversation with you. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Podcast. We also have an email, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those options. And if you want to continue the conversation, we would love to do that with you. Absolutely. If you like this episode, if you've liked some of our other episodes, besides becoming a patron, that's the best thing you can do for us. The next best thing is please share this episode on your social media or tell your friends about it. Let's continue to grow the NoScript community. We are surprised and amazed every week when the listenership grows, and we know that that's a large part because of what you all are doing to tell people about the work that is happening here on NoScript. So please continue to do that for us. You can find the podcast on Podbean, where it is hosted on Google Play, Spotify, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. We're on all of those. There's a link to the podcast posted every week on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so you can find us there as well. Yeah, yeah. So until next week when we're coming at you with another play as we wind down season two of No oh Scripted Podcast, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Scripted Podcast. Goodbye. See ya. See ya.